Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Novel. A listener note, this episode contains violence and content that some listeners might find distressing. Previously on Deliver Us from Herbal. Herbal thought that if he got rid of Joel, he could just move in and take leadership with Joel's people. Well, it didn't work. That's the problem. After he had murdered Joel, it was always the fear of them coming and attacking our town. We are driving toward Los Molinas. In 1974, they threw an attack. The attack. Most of the attackers were kids. My brother Edmundo Aguilar went and looked through the window, and at the moment he opened the curtain, he got shot in the head. He killed my dad. He should pay for it. It doesn't matter if he became possessed or obsessed with evil spirit. It doesn't change the fact that to me, Herbal was a beautiful soul. I still love Herbal. <laughs> oh, yes, a lot. of the following program is solely responsible for the program's content. Once was a prophet named Ross. He's had 12 wives, but just one hoss. Religion he knows, including UFOs, and in all his houses, he's the boss. Call him, please. He's got the keys every Friday from noon to one. He's the mighty. He's the strong. He's the one. Ross LeBaron, noon to one Friday. Around the same time, as Ervil LeBaron was forming a cult, having his own brother killed, and attacking the town of Los Molinos, across the border in America, another LeBaron voice was making waves with his own radio show. Older brother to Ervil and Joel, Ross LeBaron. Opinionated, controversial, but not exactly a smooth talker. 
Okay, this is Rockwell Barron, the helm. This will be the first program I've, where I've done and operated from the board. Although he certainly didn't lack in self-confidence. I know more about God, about the priesthood, about the prophecies, about the future, and how it operates than any man on earth. And just like so many talk show hosts and podcasters today, Ross was into some pretty out there ideas. Now, when Adam came here and when he lived in the Garden of Eden, he had spaceships. You heard that right, spaceships to take the faithful to heaven. Spaceships were called cherubim and the flaming sword. Ross LeBaron had already started building these spaceships out in the Chihuahua Desert. This was back when he lived in Colonial LeBaron in the 50s. But by the 60s, he'd left that Mexican town and moved his spaceship operation, I guess you could call it, to Utah. And while Joel and Ervil were starting out with those pamphlets to spread the message of their dream of Zion, Ross saw the power of radio, initially as a guest on other talk shows, and then with a program of his very own to connect him with the masses. My purpose on this program is to fulfill Mormonism like Christ fulfilled the law of Moses. There is actually a lot I recognize when I hear Ross LeBaron on the radio, all his references to doctrine and covenants. I grew up with these terms too. So listening in on these scratchy radio clips, mixing mainstream Mormon stuff with talk of rockets to outer space, it's kind of funny. Funnier still when you get to the show's call-in segment, where Ross is often confronted by confused, sometimes even angry listeners. Hello, you're on the air. Uh, am I on? Who is this? Uh, this is uh, John Salazar. That's very good. You're, you're a good talker. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, uh, I was wondering, uh, they're, you know, making a suggestion. Could you kind of, you know, see if you could change your slot with the Baha'is? Because, see, I, when you come on, it's my lunch hour. Okay, thank you. But as funny as he sometimes sounds, it would be foolish to laugh too hard at Ross LeBaron, to not take him and his kind seriously. Because Ross LeBaron and the shows he would make guest appearances on were a kind of lightning rod for certain kinds of listeners, often male, usually feeling isolated. They can't understand why they don't have it better in life. It's an audience hundreds of podcasters and YouTubers, cable news hosts, and politicians cater to today. This distinctive cocktail of anger and confusion seething just below the surface. And a sort of quiet desperation to believe in something where you're at the center, where you have value and a role to play. Among the listeners to Ross LeBaron in the 1960s was a man named Lloyd Sullivan. He lived in Vincennes, Indiana. In the photos I've seen of him, he's wearing thick Coke bottle glasses, dark hair and a sort of shellacked pompadour. Lloyd Sullivan was of river people stock, which means his family was one of many that lived in shanty boats up and down the Mississippi or Ohio River Valley after the Great Depression of the 1930s, drifting, looking for work. On paper, Lloyd didn't have much going for him. Not that educated, not too smart, orphaned as a child. Now in his 30s and divorced with a couple kids, had a grown son named Don Sullivan, who followed him like a shadow. Lloyd Sullivan started out in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the church I grew up in. But he started to find that mainstream Mormon doctrine was too, well, mainstream, too dull. So he moved on, initially to a far-right group called the John Birch Society, like a precursor to QAnon, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, etc. The society believed their race made them part of the chosen few, an army of American patriots, rooting out the commies, and restoring the U.S. to its white Christian foundations. 
that depressingly familiar rhetoric that echoes through much of today's America. Anyway, Lloyd Sullivan got bored of that too. And so he went back to Mormonism, but this time to the fundamentalist groups, which by the late 1960s had sprung up across the American Southwest like weeds. But one stood out to Lloyd, the one he heard about on the radio. The lame, halt, and the blind will gather with me, and the children of the kingdom will be cast out. The prophecy says the streets of Salt Lake will run in blood after they've heard my message. Wait a minute, I imagine him thinking, his ears pricking up while tooling around under a hood in his garage. This isn't dull. They'll literally be wiped off as a city. Literally. This is how Lloyd Sullivan was pulled into the LeBaron orbit. He heard Ross LeBaron in the 60s as a guest on an ultra-conservative radio show in Utah. And Ross LeBaron set him on a path that would lead him, in just a few years, right to the heart of Ervil's expanding crime empire. His story is just one example of what that journey could look like. But it's similar to so many who ended up killing in the name of Ervil LeBaron. Raised in the mainstream Mormon church, then taken in by the promise of a return to an old school style of Mormonism. And then sucked in further by the draw of an uncompromising leader. Lloyd and his shadow Don Sullivan moved down to Colonial LeBaron in 72. When Lloyd met Ervil LeBaron, it didn't take long. Four days, in fact. After arguing theology and the finer points of fundamentalist Mormon doctrine, Lloyd realized he'd been wrong again. Ross wasn't the one mighty and strong. Ervil was. A month later, Joel's dead. Two years after that, Lloyd and Don Sullivan would be instrumental in the massacre at Los Molinos. In fact, for a while, Lloyd and Don Sullivan would become Ervil LeBaron's most enthusiastic soldiers. What Ervil was building with his recruits, he may have called a church, but it had quickly morphed into something else. A crime family, intermarried, so they became intertwined with Ervil's own branch of the LeBarons. Family members whose ultimate loyalty would be to him. Within a generation, his family tree would mushroom, splinter, multiply into what he saw as the beginnings of a kingdom, something altogether different than what had begun in Colonial LeBaron, God's kingdom as a kind of mafia, now bound to each other, not just by faith, but by blood, shaped by a theology rooted mostly in vengeance. And for those who resisted, who refused to bend the knee, well, they would face the same consequences as Joel and the town of Los Molinos. They would fill the full force of God's wrath, delivered by Ervil LeBaron's cult. From the teams at Novel and iHeartRadio, this is Deliver Us from Herbal. I'm Jesse Hyde. Chapter 3 Welcome to the Family. Dorothy Solomon Allred was just six years old in 1955 when the two men unexpectedly showed up at her Utah home. They came in an old beat-up truck. They pulled into our driveway. They drove too fast. They screeched to a stop. The LeBarons had arrived, unannounced. Ervil with an older brother, Ben, the one who called himself the Elephant Strangler, this was back when Ervil was still signing up followers for Joel's church, and the LeBaron brothers were on a recruitment drive. We ran into hiding, and I watched them get out of the truck and slam the doors and yell, Anybody home? 
Dorothy's father was a man named Rulin Allred. Like the LeBarons, he was a polygamist. He had seven wives and 48 children, but just one legal wife, Myrtle. Having just one legal wife is how polygamists avoided prosecution. Still do. And it was my father's legal wife, Myrtle, who met them and told them that Rulin wasn't there, that they should go away and come back later. And they said they weren't going to leave until they could speak to him. The two LeBaron brothers decided to demonstrate just how mighty and strong they really were. They started doing push-ups in the driveway. That's when they had the stone-spitting contest. They were peculiar. Dorothy watched as the two men strutted around in front of the house, like two little banty roosters. They moved with a kind of redneck self-assurance. They moved aggressively, not confidently, but aggressively. That's why I associate it with redneck men. There was a very specific reason why the LeBarons were at Dorothy's house that day and why they wanted to speak to Dr. Allred. He wasn't just the head of a huge family, but the head of a sort of growing organization, too. Around the same time that Joel and Erbil were building their churches, there were a few large polygamous factions that existed in America, like the Kingstons, the Short Creek Group, and the Allreds. In a way, they were kinds of organized crime families, too. Not killers like Erbil LeBaron's offshoot, or even violent, but they all lived in the underground, in the shadows. Their crime was polygamy, which, remember, was illegal. So these families, they all sort of did business with each other or helped each other out. After all, if you believe in polygamy, it's not that easy to find a wife. And so these families would visit each other, intermarry. And some of these families had built empires, amassed fortunes Ervil coveted. The Kingstons, for example, had a cattle ranch in Nevada, a coal mine in central Utah. Eventually, they would have pawn shops, their own grocery store, a casino in California, and trailer parks in Las Vegas. From pretty much the start of Colonial Baron, Ervil had been trying to get rich too. It wasn't just his Mar-a-Lago-style plans for Los Molinos. His cult would attempt other, less glamorous business ventures over the years, from mushroom farms to washing machine repair businesses. And then, of course, there were their criminal enterprises, from welfare fraud to stealing cars, which it turned out they were quite good at. Eventually, they'd start stealing cars to order for clients in Mexico, switch the plates, and ship them south of the border. And yet, for all Ervil's efforts to grow his empire, it paled in comparison to what the other large fundamentalist communities were building. But Ervil didn't want to emulate those other big fundamentalist organizations. He wanted to consume them. After all, as far as he was concerned, he was the one mighty and strong. And these other families, they all owed him tithing. The Kingstons, the people in Short Creek, the Allreds, especially the Allreds. You see, with them, it was personal. Ervil wanted what they had. He thought he could get it. He thought he should get it. Shortly before Dorothy was born, the Allreds had been one of the first families settling in Colonial Baron. When they arrived, they got down from the truck that carried their belongings. They burst into tears because it was a wasteland. There was a small garden, and otherwise it was sagebrush and rattlesnakes and black widow spiders and tarantulas. They might have been polygamist refugees, but they saw the harsh reality of early life in Colonial Baron. Less than a year after they had got down from that truck, the Allreds got back on it. They rejected the LeBaron Zion, 
took their chances living polygamy in the shadows back in the U.S. And there, they had prospered. In Utah, Rulin Allred established what would become one of the largest Mormon fundamentalist sects to ever exist. Today, they're still one of the biggest. If you've ever seen the TV show Sister Wives, that family comes from the sect Rulin started. And what's more, Rulin Allred did this without ever needing to use those grandiose titles Ervil or his brothers did. He never claimed to be a prophet. There are people who hold him as a prophet. But I heard him say on different occasions that he was not a replacement for the leader. And there are many fundamentalists who have commandeered lives and commandeered brides, child brides, and done violence to people, become tyrants over people in the name of being the one mighty and strong. And I want to clear that my father never aspired to that. Dorothy grew up in a big gray house in the foothills of a place in Utah called Bluffdale. We had 20 acres, meadows and swamps and skiing hills, and it was a beautiful place to grow up. And all the playmates you could ever want, of course, with seven women procreating all at once. I had many, many siblings near my age, and I loved them. The world Dorothy remembers as a child in Utah was kind of the polar opposite from the childhood that Stephanie Spencer endured. Stephanie, who was regularly beaten and humiliated by her fundamentalist parents in Colonial Baron. Dorothy's childhood in Utah sounds pretty storybook, devoid of the violence and fear. With so many kids around, it was hard for Dorothy to find time with her father. I used to go out to the barns with him in the morning because that was time I could spend just with him. Nobody else wanted to milk. And my mother would indulge me. She'd put on my sweater and wash my face and send me out smiling. And he helped me milk the cow. And, you know, that was kind of a theme. I wanted to be like my father. I wanted to have that much respect and power. Respect. Power. Ervil wanted that. And Rulin had it. The kind of effortless stature Ervil could only dream of, could only covet. My father was a reluctant leader. He wasn't proselyting. He wasn't trying to increase his numbers. He was simply trying to protect those who believed that he was their leader. And he had a council of men advising him, too. He didn't try to lead by himself. Rulin was a naturopathic doctor, a healer, a medicine man for the New Age. Didn't do surgery, didn't prescribe medicine. It was all natural, homeopathic. He had a thriving practice, mostly fundamentalists, who avoided hospitals because hospitals asked too many personal questions. That day when Ervil and Ben barged up to Dorothy's home, started doing push-ups in the driveway, Rulin was at his office. Rulin's wife Myrtle called him and said the LeBaron boys had showed up. And Rulin was alarmed. My father came home from his office that day to head them off because he was worried about the safety of his family. He could sense there was a darkness around Ervil. He wrote about it in his journals uh, that he had disagreements with Ervil, who felt strongly that he should be in charge of not only the mainstream Church of Latter-day Saints, but the United States government. Of course, when Joel was killed, then everybody's antennas sprang up. After Joel's death in 72, Dorothy remembers her dad returning from Mexico, where he had attended the funeral in Colonial LeBaron. Arriving home, he told the family what he'd learned. It was really true. Joel LeBaron had been murdered. And it was Joel's own brother, Herbal, who was responsible. 
It wasn't long after that that the Allreds started to receive chilling threats. That's coming up after the break. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. About a month before Ervil's followers carried out the massacre in Los Molinos, Ervil met with a man in a diner in Salt Lake City. It was November of 74. The man belonged to the Kingstons, or as they called themselves, the Davis County Co-op, one of those large fundamentalist groups I mentioned earlier. Ervil bragged to him he was untouchable. You could try to shoot him with a pistol, but the pistol wouldn't fire. God protected him. Ervil also told him that within a year, he'd be the head of a separate nation, which would have power over the whole planet. To do that, he had to cleanse the earth. He asked for a meeting with the head of the Kingston clan. The meeting was set up, and Ervil told the Kingstons they owed him tithing. In fact, all the fundamentalist groups did. The Kingstons, the Allreds, the Council of Friends down in Short Creek. He was the one mighty and strong, and he had been for 12 years. For 12 years, he'd been asking for tithing, and they hadn't given it. And so Ervil gave them a deadline. They had until January 1st, 1975, one year basically, to pay him a 10% cut from all their businesses, the cattle ranch, the pawn shops, the coal mine. Or, as he put it, there would be bloodshed. He'd burn their businesses down. Herbal had come as a man of God. 
but this felt more like a mafia-style shakedown. As they say in Mexico, plata o ploma, silver or lead. Ervil visited Short Creek and the Allreds and gave them the same ultimatum. Pay up, or else. The man was done waiting around. My father actually had people come and try to protect him during these times of threat. Dorothy Allred remembers the intimidation wasn't just escalating. It was becoming more direct. My mother came home one night and saw printed in footprints on this deep snow, we'll be back. This particular threat happened on December 30th, 1974, a few days after the Los Molinos attack, just as word of the massacre had started to spread. Now, across the border up in Utah, cars were seen prowling around the all-red compound. Rocks were thrown at their home. And then someone cut the electricity. The phone rang. You think you are very secure, don't you? There was a string of threats. Pamphlets left on the windshield of his car with handwritten threats affixed to them. Threats that if he didn't repent and follow the true prophet, he was going to die. Up until the spring of 77, these threats against Rulin Allred had remained just that. Threats. No actual violence. One reason for this might have been that Ervil was occupied with another target. His younger brother, Verlin LeBaron. Verlin, who was still head of Colonial LeBaron and the Church of the Firstborn. The church Ervil had helped start with his brother Joel. Since the Los Molinos massacre in 74, when Ervil had first tried and failed to have Verlin killed, Ervil's hatred for him had only grown with a venom and passion that even startled some of Ervil's followers. Verlin knew this, and from 74, he was living in hiding. Ervil continued to hunt him through 75, 76, and into 77. He attempted further hits, got cult members to dress in disguise, and patrol the streets of Mexican towns where he thought Verlin might be holed up. They had orders to shoot, to kill on sight, but these missions had also ended in failure. By the spring of 77, Ervil's more zealous followers, like Lloyd Sullivan, were getting impatient. Why wasn't this getting done, Lloyd wanted to know. Why weren't their businesses growing faster? Why weren't they able to take over these other fundamentalist clans to unite the entire Mormon church? Why wasn't their prophet Ervil able to deliver? On April 20th, 1977, Ervil called a military emergency meeting. He got up and announced he had a plan to finally get to Verlin. If they couldn't find him, they'd draw him out into the open. His plan was to use a funeral. The funeral of one of Verlin's close friends someone who had married two of Verlin's nieces. Rulin Allred. Rulin, then Verlin. Ervil would take them both out, one after the other. Then, maybe people would finally take him seriously, pay that tithing he felt they owed. Rulin's assassination was going to be the spark that would start the fire. It would be carried out by one of Ervil's most trusted followers from a bedrock family of his crime empire. This particular family were called the Chinoths. The city of East Layton, a little north of Salt Lake City, Utah, is surrounded by pasture and open land. In the winter, snow-capped mountains. It's peaceful but also kind of boring in that way most suburbs are. Sleepy, well-ordered, unremarkable. Both figuratively and literally more than a thousand miles away from the extremes of the Chihuahua Desert and Colonial Baron. 
but it used to share one key characteristic with that Mexican town. Almost everyone who lived there was Mormon. This was the upbringing of Glenn Chinoth. All right, I'm good. All right. Well, Glenn, first off, thank you. Um, I'm sitting in Glenn's uh, living room on a cold December morning. Is that dog a problem? He's got a couple little dogs that he's putting in a kennel off in the kitchen to keep them from jumping up on me. They are protective, not of me, but of the wife, so... Glenn, 79, is wearing blue coveralls, sturdy black boots, thick glasses. Blue collars like all the uncles I grew up with who worked construction. There's a picture of Jesus on the wall, like the one my grandpa had in his double-wide trailer. It's all very familiar, even homie sitting with him, like we could be related. Although Glenn and I are a few generations apart, his upbringing was much more like mine than anything that happened in Colonial Baron. We're both products of the mainstream Mormon church. In both our families, religion was front and center. It was pretty well the only thing. My dad was worked out at Hill Air Force Base. My mom was very religious. We went to church, went to all the activities. Family prayer, church basketball games, campouts with a local congregation up in the mountains. Rockwellian. And then, of course, there were Glenn's siblings. Mark, the musician. Mark was a really good piano player. Just bring a piano up and he could just make it sing. Younger brother, Victor. Victor who was five years my junior. He was well built. I remember I couldn't pick him up. <laughs> and he wasn't fat. He was just solid built little guy. His little sis, Lorna. Age-wise, I was closest to her. But she was a pain-in-the-butt little sister to me. And then there were the two babies of the family, Dwayne and Rena. You know, I changed their diapers and I babysat them. And, and that happened. There was another sibling too, Jerry, but he died young, aged just seven. Tragedies like this, I'm not sure how parents ever recover. There were other tensions in the Chnoth family too. You see, Glenn's dad, Bud, wasn't exactly a devout believer. Sure, he went to church, but he smoked, which is taboo among Mormons. And he drank a lot. He filled the family room with car parts, engine blocks, tools. I guess that's why for Glenn's mom, Thelma, church became sort of a refuge. She was committed. Baking a ham for a funeral, sewing a quilt for Christmas. The church became her family too. And so, in 1955, when her brother introduced her to two important-looking believers who were in town from Mexico, she invited them to visit her home. And then uh, that's when the LeBarons showed up, and uh, things got pretty rough after that. You know, it's been a long time since this all happened. For you, recalling these memories, talking about this, how do you feel about that? I'm doing okay with it. I'm uh, past the point where it brings tears. The LeBarons arrived in Glenn's life during that period where Joel and Ervil were still operating as a united front, before Ervil pulled away and started his own cult. The two brothers told the family about the new community they were building down in Mexico. They should come check it out for themselves. There was space for the whole family. Joel was... You know, I could see he believed what he, he believed. I saw no violence there at that point. And it was hard to resist what he wanted to do because he was an easygoing, nice, decent guy. But whatever it was the two men in suits were selling, Disagreed. Glenn wasn't buying. I couldn't win in a debate or a discussion, but I, I just didn't buy their teachings. It was a confrontation because... They wanted me to think their way, and I wasn't going to do it. So Glenn started avoiding the house altogether during their visits. But in his absence, the LeBarons were finding fertile ground. My mom converted first, then my sister, oldest sister. This was Lorna. She was just 17 when Orville arrived, an aspiring actress and model, tall, willowy, and beautiful. 
One day, Lorna told her mom she wanted to marry Ervil. Ervil already had three wives and was a full 19 years older than Lorna. But Thelma had converted too and had no objections. Initially, they kept this a secret from Glenn's dad, Bud. Lorna told her dad she was going to take a job at the Grand Canyon for the summer. When she didn't come back for school, Thelma told him the truth. Their daughter had married Ervil LeBaron and moved to Mexico. And then she was gone. That's the last time I saw her. Ever? Yeah. Once Ervil's claws were into the family, he wasn't going to stop at Lorna. Thelma wanted to go to Mexico too, but Bud wasn't so sure. So Thelma moved into her own room contemplating divorce. Realizing what was at stake, Bud quit drinking and smoking, started studying his scriptures, cleaned up all his tools and engine parts in the front room. And eventually Bud converted too. They all did. Only Glenn held out. The whole family just up and moved. So I'm at that point pretty well out on my own. And it was tough on me. By 1966, all the Chinoths, minus Glenn, had relocated to Mexico to join the LeBarons. Their destination was Los Molinos. They thought they were going to go out and save the world. Herbal was their leader. He had convinced them that they could go out and save the world, and they all got on this ship. And as they went along, it started sinking. And then it caught on fire. That's coming up after the break. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I dot com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. 
What Glenn Chinoth experienced, losing his entire family to the LeBaron cult, was one personal tragedy of many, as Erville built his crime family outward, converting followers, marrying their daughters, who would then bear him children. And because these were polygamous relationships, many wives having many children, Erville was able to grow his followers at scale, rather than just one by one. And the Chinoths would rise to the highest ranks of his family. They'd become Erville's most beloved disciples, to use a word from scripture. Mercenaries, assassins, concubines, that would be the more crass, but honestly, more accurate way to put it. Erville had plans for all of them. Thelma had brains, and she was not afraid to speak her mind. She would become one of Erville's chief strategists. Bud had his uses too. Handy, dependable, but his greatest gift to Erville were his kids. After becoming Erville's wife, Lorna would bear him eight children. Her brother Victor would become the family's money man, kind of like the infamous mob accountant Meyer Lansky. Erville would eventually name him Minister of Finance. Mark, the gifted musician, who could have looked at the kid with a mop of black hair, who loved one of the corniest bands of all time, the Monkees, and seen a straight killer? No one back in East Layton saw that. But the things Mark would end up doing with a gun? Cold-blooded. Erville saw that. Mark would become one of the killers of the Los Molinos Massacre. And that would be just the start. Dwayne would also prove to be deadly with a gun. At Los Molinos, he had been the attacker unmasked by his former almost girlfriend before he drove around the town, burning his neighbor's houses and shooting into their homes. But of all the Chinoths, none would prove more valuable and for a time more loved than Glenn's youngest sister, Rena. She too would marry Erville, bear him children, and like her brothers, she had been at the Los Molinos attack, watching from the sidelines. But on April 20th, 1977, when Erville held that military emergency meeting, the one where he outlined his audacious plan for double murder, first of Rulin Allred, then his own brother Verlin at the funeral, it was Rena's turn to take center stage. She had been selected to kill for Erville a murder that set off a chain of events, altering the path of Erville's cult forever. On the morning of May 10th, 1977, the hit team arrived in the Salt Lake Valley. 20 miles south of there in Bluffdale, Dorothy was arriving at her family's compound. I was alarmed to see that in front of the White House, which was the original property my father had acquired, there were these big gouges in the front lawn. They looked like grapes with the dirt piled to the side. Dorothy could see that the barn was being torn down. Maybe the gouges had something to do with that. Still, she felt unsettled. And then she heard something tapping on her car window. And I looked and I, I thought I saw my grandmother who had lived on that compound with us prior to her death. And she used to reach through with her cane and tap on my mother's bedroom window when she needed help. Well, she was tapping on my window urgently and I thought I could hear it. I looked and there was nothing there. And then I turned my attention back and I heard the tapping again. It was the same experience. And my little girl said, ghosts. I didn't even know she knew that word. And that gave me chills. And I said, ghosts, honey? And she nodded very seriously. And I shivered. It just kind of stayed with me as we left. I looked at those gouged out holes that looked like graves. Dorothy was due to meet her dad that day, but she had an invitation to meet up with a friend, 
so she had postponed. On her way, she passed by her father's doctor's office. As we passed my father's office, I saw two women out in front. One was in a blue parka, and I got those chills again. Around this time, two of Irville's followers, Ramona Marston and Rena Chnoth, were getting decked out in strikingly similar outfits. Rena in a blue parka, from a thrift store they'd shopped at earlier that morning to buy disguises. They both wore white shirts, dark pants, curly wigs, wireframe glasses with no lenses. Dorothy drove on, continued away from the city, eventually meeting up with her friend at a place called the Mountain Dell Golf Course. It was a beautiful day up at Mountain Dell. We came out about six o'clock. And as we were going down the mountain, my brother had the radio on and I couldn't hear what he was saying. And so I leaned forward and said, will you turn that radio down or off? Because I can't hear you. Otherwise, I would have heard the news announcement. We stopped to get food for our children who were being babysat at my house. I called to ask what everyone wanted. My daughter said, Mama, Grandma wants you to call her right now. And I said, don't you want something to eat? And she said, Mama, call Grandma right now. And so I called my mother. And she said, honey, your daddy's been shot. And I said, is he dead? And she said, yes, he's dead. The Allred family gathered that night and began to piece together the details of what happened. One of Ruland's wives had actually been there at the time of the killing, sitting in the waiting room. She had witnessed the whole thing. She'd actually had the murderer's weapon pointed at her because she stepped in the way to try to protect him. At 4.43 p.m., two women entered Dr. Allred's waiting room. Rena pulled a 25 caliber from her bulky blue parka and fired two shots straight at the doctor at point-blank range. Those were her orders to destroy the false prophet's face. Ervil had ordered the killers to shoot his face, a kind of twisted additional vengeance against the man he saw as his rival. My father wasn't a false prophet. He was just a good man. He was a doctor, and he was kind, and he was a good father. So, you know, it's good that his face wasn't destroyed, but he was still gone. Just like Naoma Stubbs fearing the bombs, fire, and awaiting gunshots in Colonial Baron. Dorothy hadn't just worried about the terror she was now experiencing. It was like she'd seen it coming. It feels kind of strange to say that out loud, but this is the kind of thing people have told me time after time while reporting this story. I knew that it was coming, but it didn't make it any easier. And I was really sorry that I hadn't been there. And for me, it was, if I kept my appointment, maybe I could have faced her down. Maybe I could have seized the weapon or talked to her, uh, spoken to her about what she was doing. Of course, I probably would have been killed myself. There's that part too, but I felt a lot of guilt about it, not being there to protect him. The killing was just a prelude, a way to lure Verlin out into the open. And it had worked. Because now, three days after the Dr. Rulin Allred murder, the funeral was being held. It was held at Bingham High School in their enormous auditorium. It was the largest 
personal funeral held in the state of Utah. You know, not of a so-called public figure. As Ervil had prophesied, Verlin had left his hiding place and traveled into Utah. And here he was, taking his seat with all the other mourners in the auditorium. Meanwhile... Waiting across the street in vehicles with three men with sub-automatic rifles with banana clips taped together capable of spewing 120 rounds within seconds. They were prepared to go in and kill Verlin LeBaron. But this is where Herbal's plan unraveled. Because his followers waiting outside in the car as the crowds arrived, including Don Sullivan, the son of Lloyd, and a man named Eddie Marston, were suddenly having second thoughts. They got scared when they saw the police and the media and the crowds. And they decided to risk Erville rather than risk the police. And they left. For now, another massacre had been avoided. A great many people would have died because they were instructed to kill anyone who got in their way. Once again, Ervil had failed in what he thought was an ingenious plot to kill Verlin. And this was far from the only downside for Ervil. Because in killing Rulin Allred, a man with more than 2,000 followers, a man well-known in Salt Lake City, a man with contacts on the police force and in the governor's office, Ervil had put himself on the radar of some powerful enemies. Cops the FBI, prosecutors, and people like me, journalists. A media-led investigation into who Erbil was, where he was, and just what he was up to was just getting started. I thought, holy cow, have I got a scoop on this. And on top of that, a righteous endeavor. Because this is a bad guy, and if you find someone who's like Satan, expose him. That's coming up in Episode 4 of Deliver Us from Erbil. Deliver Us from Herbal is hosted by me, Jesse Hyde, and written and reported by me, Leona Hamid, and David Waters. Production from Leona Hamid and David Waters. Sean Glynn and Max O'Brien are executive producers. Lena Chang and Megan Oyinka are researchers. Mariana Gongora is our field producer. Fact-checking by Danya Suleiman and Sona Avakian. Production management from Cherie Houston, Frankie Taylor, and Charlotte Wolf. Austin Mitchell is our creative director of production. Michael e. Rao is our managing editor. Gavin Haynes is our head of development. Willard Foxton is our creative director of development. Sound design, mixing, and scoring by Nicholas Alexander and Daniel Kempson. Music supervision by Nicholas Alexander and David Waters. Our music is composed by Julian Lynch. Special thanks to Scott Anderson, Scott Carrier, Del Van Atta, Pippa Smith, Saskia Edwards, Matt O'Mara, Katrina Norvell, and Beth Ann Macaluso, Oren Rosenbaum, Shelby Shankman, and all the team at UTA. For more from Novel, visit novel.audio. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Introducing the Lisa Chill Collection, your answer to hot nights. These mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers, whisking away heat for the perfect sleep temperature. Save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows when you shop now. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.